Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 248, Andrew Smith, Grasshopper Jungle. Today's episode is sponsored by The Changeling Detective by Philip Berry. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, podstructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, adventures in sci-fi public sci-fi Folks, thanks for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Very excited for our episode today. Andrew Smith is a young adult author who writes books for adults and uh, down to age 11. So I don't want that to turn you off because he is one of my favorite authors right now, and I've only known about him for a week. So I was very excited to discover him, to discover Grasshopper Jungle, Uh, We had a fun conversation. The reading that he does at the end is hilarious and just one example of many laugh-out-loud moments from his book. He will be live-tweeting this week from a Twitter account, Austin Zerba, uh, A-U-S-T-I-N-S-Z-E-R-B-A. I'll put that in the show notes if you don't remember that. Uh, But he's going to be live-tweeting as the character quotes from the book, uh, which are very funny. I want to jump right into it, but first I want to mention that we have a couple book giveaways going on on our website. Uh, If you come to adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com and look for, on the right-hand side of our main page, we have links to our Tor Anthologies book giveaway. We have a giveaway for Dangerous Women, Year's Best SF18, and 21st Century Science Fiction. And we also have a giveaway going for Breach Zone by Mike Cole. Those go through the end of the week. I think Saturday they end, maybe. We also have book reviews on Ancillary Justice, Hangwire, an interview with Adam Christopher, and Sand by Hugh Howey. I'm writing a Hugh Howey Sand fanfic right now. It's definitely a different experience. I'm really enjoying it. It's a great book and a great world to write in. It's exciting. I'll let you know how that goes. I also signed up, or I created a newsletter for my fiction for people to uh, sign up and find out when I release something new. It was long overdue for authors. Uh, been listening to a lot of the self-publishing podcasts, and they talk about making sure that you have a clear... Um, I don't remember the term they use, but at the end of your ebook, that you have a link that goes to something effective, like a newsletter sign-up or another book that you wrote or something like that. Okay, enjoy this episode with Andrew Smith. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. It is a pleasure to have on the line today one of my new favorite authors, Andrew Smith. 
thank you very much for having me, Timothy. I'm I'm really looking forward to chatting about this. I am too. If I can uh, praise you for a little bit on how I encountered your book, Grasshopper Jungle. I got an email from Tara, your publicist at Penguin, and uh, you know I get I get a bunch of emails like this, and I generally just browse through, and you know I have enough books to read for many years. Um, <laughs> when I got your email about this book, it was Iowa post-apocalyptic with giant praying mantis uh, monsters, and. <laughs> I don't know if she told you about this yet, but I was like, that jerk. Um, the book that I'm working on is also post-apocalyptic in Iowa with giant praying mantises. So I was like, oh, no, is this going to be a trend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. Are you kidding me? You really, you're really working on a book like that? Yeah, it's... It's nowhere near the tone of your book. Uh, yours is hilarious. Um, maybe the funniest book I've ever read, uh, and I don't mean that lightly. Mine is more darkish fantasy. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I was like, oh man, here I was, you know, patting myself on the back for not writing a book with zombies, uh, and I just came up with some praying mantises and some other insects. Uh, <laughs> And then I get this email from Tara with a book that has giant praying mantises. Um, so that was we had a laugh with that. We said uh, she said that you're probably the only one that has that, but if there's a third, uh, we'll know what to do with them. So uh, you you and I are tight, but if there's a third person, uh, action will have to be taken. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I'll send him some unstoppable corn or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, for those of you who haven't read this book, we're going to do a reading at the very end. I don't think it's a spoiler in any way, do you? You know, I, I don't think so, because I don't I don't really think that there's very much that you could reveal about this book that would spoil anything, because there's so much going on, and there's such little seemingly insignificant things that all connect kind of really in the last couple of pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so I finished your book today. Amazing job, uh, five stars. I loved it. Uh, so awesome job, Andrew. I um, I told a friend that it was like John dies at the end, but if they were teenagers. But the more I read it, this this is much better than John dies at the end. Um, the relationship between the the two guy characters is probably the best friendship that I've ever read between two guys. Uh, it's amazing. Oh, well, thank you very much. And, uh, and, and the, the plot, I just, I couldn't stop reading it. So, but we will get on into the story. People are hearing my praises that don't mean much, uh, as far as context. Do you have a pitch that you could give about grasshopper jungle? Wow. You know, <laughs> I do. And I, and I, I always preface it with this story that when, I got a phone call from Julie Strauss-Gable, who's my editor and the publisher at Dutton, uh, which is uh, an imprint of Penguin. And we spoke for a very long time about the book. And I said, you know, Julie, I said, I, I think I've written a book for which it would be impossible for anybody to write flap copy. You know, flap copies, the stuff on the inside jacket that summarizes the book. 
And, uh, and she kind of agreed and she said, you know, the challenge, she accepted the challenge of trying to come up with something. But if, when I, when I talk about it, because I kind of look at the book in a more of a holistic way and I'm, I've always been fascinated by the way things connect and the way that seemingly like insignificant and unconnected things really do connect with each other. And, and I'm also fascinated by history and, and, and with this idea that we keep being told over and over and we keep telling, you know, our kids the same thing that, you know, people who don't learn from history are bound to make mistakes. They're bound to make, you know, the, the horrible choices. But yet we, we also, if you look at history, we keep doing the same things over and over. And so I wonder why we even bother to record it, because we'd be better off probably just not knowing all the crappy stuff we did in the past, because uh, maybe that's what makes us keep doing things. And I think that that was really the approach that I took in writing this book, was to make this story about connections and to pose some questions about history and and, and what really is, is our task uh, when we sit, sit down and attempt to record something. So I think with that introduction, we have to get into the three main characters. So introduce us to your cast. Okay. The cast, the main characters are, um, they're all 16 years old, um, and they also all attend a private Lutheran school in a fictional town called Ealing, Iowa. And uh, the main character, the narrator, is a boy named Austin Serva, and his very best friend is named Robbie Breeze, and Austin's girlfriend is named Shan Collins. And the thing about Austin is that he's, he really loves his friends a lot, and Robbie happens to be gay, and that makes, that kind of, when, when Austin starts to become kind of, I, I don't know, aware of his identity, Austin starts to wonder whether, you know, you know, whether or not he's gay, and, but yet he's also totally in love with and attracted to Shan, and so it's a, you know, it's a different kind of uh, scenario of, as far as friends are concerned, because they all really like each other very much, and uh, also, unlike a lot of what are called young adult novels, you know, the, you know, the, the recurring thing of parents that are not there or just really bad parents. Well, there are parents in the book and, uh, and especially Austin's parents love him very much, but they have their own, they have their own pain that they're dealing with because Austin's older brother is over in Afghanistan. And, uh, and so there are also all these minor characters. I at one time tried to list them all and I just gave up after a while, but there are, minor characters from the past and from the present in this town of Ealing, Iowa, that pop in and pop out of the book. And uh, they all kind of, their stories all kind of crisscross right in Austin's path as he and Robbie kind of stumble into something that is potentially going to end the world and human existence. What do you love about this story? I love the story a lot. And, and I mean, this is my seventh published novel and my eighth published book. And, um, and I still, I enjoy opening it up and reading it. And the thing that I love the most about it is something that really, that happened outside of the book. And 
what happened outside of the book was that I was I was going to just stop writing professionally. And I've written all my life, and I've gotten to this point where I was really kind of unhappy with the business of writing, and um, and I and I parted ways with my literary agent, and I sent her a letter, and I explained I'm I'm just quitting. I'm just going to quit writing. I, I didn't have any in, intention of quitting writing for myself, but I was just going to stop the business part of it. And so, and, and so that summer, that was the summer of uh, 2011. Um, I started writing this book, and uh, and when I was writing for myself, as I had since I was a child. I mean, I've always really loved that feeling because it's it's a completely free feeling. I'm not writing for anybody or to satisfy anybody. And so I wrote this book in about two months, and I wrote it straight through as I do all of my books, and I don't outline or anything, but, but just the feeling of writing this book and having all of these things just kind of like magically connect without making an outline, without drawing a map ahead of time was just an amazing feeling for me. And I think that that feeling of that freedom and that joy that I had in writing it, I think that it comes through on the pages of the book. Now, thankfully, I guess, for me, maybe, (laughs) I became friends during the time that I was writing it. I became friends with a man named Michael Barrett, who happens to be a literary agent, who has always been a fan of my work. And we'd met a couple of times, and Michael just wanted to talk to me about my writing and so on, and he'd been asking me about what I was doing. And I told him, and he and he said, well, you know, do you want to, would you show me some of it? And so I showed it to him, and he said, you know, I have to, uh, I have to have this book, and we have to show this book to people. And so he kind of like talked me down from my literary ledge where I was going to, you know, just stop everything and uh, and that's why I, I dedicated the book to him as a matter of fact he's a terrific man and, uh, and an amazing literary agent and I feel good again about what I'm doing what's powerful to you about the story I, I, yeah I mean I don't want to I, I, I don't want to make anybody feel bad about anything but I mean I think that what's powerful about the story is that there's this thing that keeps resonating about really uh, the lack of compassion that we have in America for certain people, for poor people and for homeless people and for people that are just seen as just maybe just not fitting in and being an outcast. And I think that Austin, as the narrator, in his kind of really clinical way of looking at things, um, doesn't really necessarily editorialize along those lines, but I think that the way that he presents all of these various stories, I think it conveys this very strong message about the wastefulness of certain things, about the bad choices that are made um, by corporations and the bad choices that are made in engaging us militarily in other parts of the world and how these bad choices can spider web in a three-dimensional pattern through all of these innocent people's lives. Um, I think that, that that's the idea that for me resonates most powerfully. But I think that any reader is probably going to maybe find something else in the book. Hmm. 
Yeah, and that's not even what I would have named if I were to say one thing. Um, for me, I think the most powerful aspect was the honesty. Uh, I loved getting to know Austin and and Robbie and Shan and um, I I don't read really much YA, uh, and so I'm not sure what the tropes are for this genre, but it's a struggle for him to figure out. He's he's confused for most of this novel. And for me, I just I just loved being there with him and going through his confusion. And and I think that may have been one of the things that really pulled me along to see is what what he was learning and, you know, how he'd respond to the situations around him. Yeah, I, that's another thing, too, that that was really, really important to me. And and also working with Julie, my editor, really helped me to zero in on exactly what I needed Austin to say, because I work with kids. Um, I work with hundreds of kids all the time, kids that are this age in particular. And one of the things that was important to me about Austin, about that idea of the confusion, is that Austin is hyper-aware of all kinds of things, and he's in particularly hyper-aware of, I think, um, society's um, assignment of roles for boys and for girls and what a boy is supposed to be and what a girl is supposed to be. And when he starts to realize that he doesn't fit perfectly well into society's boys' box, it kind of troubles him it troubles him to the point of him being tormented is that why don't why am i not the exact model of what a boy is supposed to be and i think that's an important issue um that that we all have to kind of look at not not just teenagers because i do want teenagers to read the book but also adults because austin comes to a point where he wants to talk to his father about this and they have this most painfully awkward conversation over a dinner of fish sticks and french fries. And his father knows exactly what Austin wants to talk about, but he kind of skirts the issue. And he's so relieved when Austin finally drops the topic. And I think that I'm a father of two teenagers, a boy and a girl. And I think that if, if I could get adults, parents, male and female parents, uh, of teenagers to get this idea that, you know, the thing that you should be afraid of is not the conversation. You should be afraid of avoiding the conversation like Austin's kind of cowardly father does on that one really critical time when he has the only opportunity he'll ever get to talk to his son about his son's conflicting feelings. Yeah, there's uh, some powerful emotions going on uh, in this story, and that was that was a doozy right there. And by the way, you mentioned something about young adult, and see, and I've never considered anything that I write to be young adult because I think too many people believe that young adult equals an age level, and I don't write for teenagers. I write about this experience, and I write for readers, and I have readers that are as young as 11 years old, believe it or not, reading this, the kind of stuff that I put out. And then I have, you know, and then I have I, the vast majority of my readers happen to be adults. And I really want this book to end up in the hand of adults and especially parents, um, because I think that people need to kind of revisit that 
time, uh, that troubling time of being, you know, 16, 17 years old, and also having these relationships with friends that you feel so close to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I, I definitely see this as being a, a wide-ranging uh, audience. When I when I mention YA, I think of characters at that age level. Um, but yes, I I agree. This should be read by adults as well. You kind of already mentioned one of the things that I was thinking of, and and as I was reading it, one of the things I loved about it was how easy it seemed like it was to write this book. And you mentioned how you were writing it for yourself. I wonder if you could kind of go through the evolution uh, that you've had as a writer to the point where you could write this book, like some of the things that you learned to get you to this point. Well, I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I've always written all my life. I've written stories, and when I was a kid, I wrote poetry, and I think I'm really bad at writing poetry. And, uh, and I never stopped writing. And so I think that, you know, that, that kind of like that, that constant practice is something that helped me tremendously. But then also in my career as a writer of fiction, a published, you know, of published fiction, I've had the opportunity to work with what I think what a lot of writers would think would be a bucket list of the best, the very, very best editors that are out there that are working in uh, young adult literature today. And they're, they are um, Liz Sabla, who works uh, for Macmillan, uh, David Gale, brilliant editor who works uh, at Simon and & Schuster, and Julie Strauss-Gable, who is just, I mean, she's phenomenal. And like each one of these editors has known exactly how to ask me the right questions to kind of guide me to producing the best stuff that I could get out. And, uh, and I think that, you know, that, that there's an evolution uh, kind of in uh, my ability as a, as an author. And I think that it really kind of hits a peak with this, this, this work, Grasshopper Jungle. So I wonder if there's anything you can say um, concretely as far as maybe questions that you have learned to ask yourself based on the guidance that these editors have given you as you're writing a book. You know, um, when I'm writing, I, I think that every writer has their own particular method of doing things. And, and I, I do not draft. I just write. And I think there's a difference between drafting and writing um, because I don't really revise. Um, and when I'm finished, I send it in. And, and that's been my, the way that I write, uh, that I've written every novel that I've had published. What I do, though, is uh, I always write very early in the morning. And uh, whenever I'm writing, I always go back in the stuff that I'd written the day before or several days before, or maybe I'll read an earlier chapter and I'll just, and and then I'll ask those questions about, you know, does this need to be here? Do I need to put something in between these few paragraphs and so on? 
So I'm always kind of like going back and forth and back and forth, which is also kind of how I tell stories. So that by the time I get to those very last pages, I am literally finished with the book, but it's the first time through. But I spend an awful lot of time on pretty much every sentence and every word and every punctuation mark that I put into the in, into the finished manuscript. Wow. So for someone that hasn't read any of your works, I wonder if you could kind of give us the the showcase version of your catalog. Well, well, I mean, I could tell you what I've written in order. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. In 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 2008, uh, my first novel was published. It was called Ghost Medicine, and I never I never considered the idea of publishing a novel. Um, I was challenged into it by a friend that I I've been friends with since I was 14 or 15 years old. And she's a published author. And she said, why haven't you ever published anything? And I said to her, I said, well, I've got a lot of novels on my hard drive. I've just never thought about publishing them. So I said, okay, I'll take the challenge. I'll, I'll clean this one up and I'll send it off. And so I sent off my very first novel. I, I got an agent right away. Um, the first agent, the number one agent I wanted, Um, and she took the novel back to New York and there were multiple offers made on it. And then, and then I was terrified because I didn't want anybody to read anything that I'd written. And I was just kind of doing this kind of as a fluke and, but it happened. And and that was followed in 2009 by a novel called in the path of falling objects. Uh, in 2010, I published a novel that was pretty controversial called The Marbury Lens. Uh, in 2011, another novel came out called Stick. In 2012, I wrote a sequel to The Marbury Lens called Passenger. Uh, in 2013, just last May, Simon & Schuster published my novel Winger. And in October of 2013, I was part of an anthology with Carol Rota Carol Labs, uh, called um, losing it, um, and uh, and then now in February on February 11th, uh, Grasshopper Jungle is being published by Penguin, and then I've got uh, another book coming out in September with uh, Simon and Schuster called 100 Sideways Miles, and then two two more books in 2015. <laughs> wow. Um... So how would you describe them as far as the range of stories that you're telling in these books that you've published? Um, there, whenever I write something, unless in the, in the, with the exception of the sequel, uh, Passenger was the sequel of The Marbury Lens, and I, they did also announce yesterday that I'm writing a sequel to Winger. So with the exception of those, I always consciously try when I'm writing something to write something that's totally unlike anything that I've written before. And also I always consciously try to write something that I don't think I've ever seen out there before. So the, I mean, they run the whole gamut from, I mean, ghost medicine is almost a modern contemporary Western, uh, to, um, you know, uh, contemporary kind of like action suspense to kind of uh, very, you know, 
very much horror dystopian kind of uh, speculative uh, with the Marbury lens. And then there's this thing, uh, Grasshopper and Winger, which was funny and had pages of graphic novel right in the middle of the text. And then this, um, Grasshopper Jungle, which kind of a lot of people say is genre bending um, because, I mean, there are a lot of people who consider it to be science fiction. Some people, some somebody called it magical realism. Um, and I don't know if it really fits into anything particularly well. I think it's kind of like, I, I would call it hallucinatory realism. It's definitely a trip to imagine uh, praying mantises uh, killing people the way that they do and... Uh... <laughs> And it just kind of being out of nowhere. Yeah, I could see that. The Changeling Detective by Phil Barry. What if you could look like anybody you wanted to? What if you discovered you weren't the only one? Who would you trust? The Changeling Detective thought he was unique. A mutant, like those in the comics he read as a kid. But when he becomes a target of a foul-smelling crime boss with similar abilities and his new girlfriend turns out to be a genuine witch, his whole world is turned upside down and he finds himself fighting against a supernatural enemy who's a better shapeshifter than he is. The Changeling Detective is the first book in an urban fantasy detective noir series by Philip Barry set in contemporary Australia with elements of crime, religion, and dark fantasy. Find out more at hotspurpublishing.com. So what was controversial about the, is it the Marbury lens? The Marbury lens, I mean, it's a very, very dark journey into the kind of like the uh, guilt-laced psychology of a victim, uh, a victim of abuse. And, um, and, you know, and one of the things that, that happened was that in uh, I think it was June of 2011. It was in the summer of 2011, which was kind of a pivotal moment for me. And uh, somebody, uh, there was an op-ed piece that was published uh, by the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the author of this piece um, was accusing young adult literature of being too dark and actually inflicting harm on young people. And the author um of this piece targeted me first. I was the first person named and uh, the author, you know, pulled, you know, kind of cherry picked a pretty gruesome line from the Marbury lens. And, uh, and I took it really personally. I take things like that very personally because I'm, I'm a father. Um, I love kids. And when, when I, I when I'm accused of actually inflicting harm on kids, it, it, it really hurt me, and I, I I was losing sleep over that, and uh, and that's you know that was one of the things, probably the last straw uh, of the summer when I decided that I was going to quit, and and when I did quit, then I just wrote this book, and uh, like I said, I'd just written it for me, and I never responded to the author of that article in the Wall Street Journal. I thought some people were really really mean. Um, and made some really mean comments about it on social media. And I wanted to just kind of stay out of it because that, that, those mean comments that were directed towards that author um, also kind of made me feel bad. Like I didn't want to be a part of that. And I, I believe that people who write should be able to write whatever they want to write. Yet still, you know, I was 
bothered by it and losing sleep. And so I did kind of get even with that person, though, because I wrote this chapter in Grasshopper Jungle about book banning at Austin School, and the chapter is called Stupid People Should Never Read Books. And uh, I, I intentionally wrote that because I wanted people to think about how ridiculous it is to make a criticism of a novel just based on one small thing. And the novel that's mentioned in Grasshopper Jungle is one of my favorite young adult novels of all time, uh, The Chocolate War by Robert Cormier. In saying that about that criticism being kind of the the tripping point, what else about the publishing industry were you kind of fed up with and, and how is it different now with your approach? I never really liked any of the business stuff that is involved, like the contract negotiations and things like that. And, and, you know, thankfully now the agent that I have, Michael, um, is he's really um, caring as far as my sensitivity towards things like contract negotiations and so forth. And he's, he's also very capable of uh, looking out for my best interests, which I like very much. Um, uh, he uh, sometimes, I mean, in at the beginning, um, for the first novels that I'd written, I sometimes felt so kind of detached and so isolated sometimes. And sometimes it would be uh, such a long period of time before I would have feedback or response to things that I wanted to have feedback or responses to. And again, I just, I kind of have to think that it's, it was, I I was probably mismanaging myself and I was probably also mismanaged um, by my first agent, which is, I guess that's a terrible thing to say. And I, you know, but it's, uh, I'm in a better place now. I'm, I'm, uh, and I think that my agent who's taking care of me is more of a manager and less of an editor. Uh, He's not somebody who actually reads my stuff and then makes comments on it for me to change because it's, that's not what I need. So those were, those were the big things. I mean, I'm also now I'm with two houses um, that are different um, from the first house that I was with, I'm with simultaneously, I'm with Simon and Schuster and I'm with Penguin. And both of those, both of those places, I, I feel like they've, they've um, hit that thing (laughs) that I was hoping would get hit, um, which is they advertise and they promote and they, and they make sure that the right people pay attention to the work that I'm doing. Cause I thought, for my first five novels that I had somehow miraculously discovered the formula for invisibility. But uh, Simon and Schuster have <laughs> made sure that my work has, you know, been visible. So. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the things that Penguin is doing for the release for Grasshopper Jungle? Cause I'm going to release this uh, on your release date. So anything that people hear about from you, they will uh, be able to check out. Penguin has been so amazing about this book, about about sending copies to the right people, independent booksellers, 
librarians. They've made T-shirts, and everybody in the world wants... They've made these Unstoppable Corn T-shirts. I don't know if you've seen them, but (laughs) everyone in the world is asking for an Unstoppable Corn T-shirt. You know what? I'll make sure that you get sent one. Oh, wow. That would be amazing. Oh, it's a done deal. I promise you, you're going to get one. They, 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 so they're making T-shirts, and then the spillover has been phenomenal. I mean, because Grasshopper Jungle's been picked up in so many foreign markets, and it's also, it was namely, it was picked up in the U.K. by Egmont, uh, Egmont U.K. and their imprint, Electric Monkey. And the people at Egmont have just, they, they've gone overboard as far as well not overboard they could do more <laughs> but uh, they've made you know uh, they've made a video trailer for the book they make they they've made all kinds of promotional kinds of gifts that they've been giving out to booksellers and reviewers uh they, in the UK uh, for public transit people use a little card that's called an oyster card. They, they're making oyster card holders with the grasshopper jungle uh, design on it. Um, and people in the UK know about this book already, and that's coming out there on February 27th. And uh, there's already been this just this amazing amount of support and, you know, enthusiasm from reviewers and bloggers and booksellers in the UK and in Australia um, about the book. And so it's just, uh, it's all of these pieces of the puzzle that are kind of finally kind of clicking together as far as the work and also then the commercial support from the house that's putting the work out there. Very cool. I'm excited. So do you know as far as events that readers can participate in, with the release here in America for Grasshopper Jungle, is anything going on? Are you doing a book tours or anything? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm going to be in a lot of places. Um, as a matter of fact, um, starting pretty much right away. I just came back from uh, Seattle and Dallas last week, and then tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Penguin is throwing a launch party for me here in Los Angeles, and they're inviting a bunch of independent bookstore owners to come out and meet me. And um, that's going to be great. Even um, Julie, my editor, is flying out from New York just for this party tomorrow night. I'll be in Washington State in March. Uh, In April, I'll be at the Texas Library Association um, and also at the LA, the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and that's a wide-open festival um, for anybody can go to that's in uh, Los Angeles at USC. And also in, in April, I'll be doing uh, a teen book festival in Pasadena. And in May, I'll be at the Rochester Teen Book Festival. And then I have I have events that are scheduled all the way through 2015 because of this book. Okay. Are those listed on your website? Yes, they are. Okay. Uh, what is your website, by the way? Oh, my website is authorandrewsmith.com. Very good. Another uh, common named author. <laughs> oh, I know. And, you know, when I first started off, there was 
another author named Andrew Smith who has a couple of books out. And uh, he, and so if anybody ever did a search, they always thought that I was him. And now I think that because of the, the, the number of titles that I've had published, I think that I've kind of eclipsed him a little bit, thankfully. <laughs> yes. I, there's another Tim Ward, um, that's published some, I want to say like Buddhist erotica. And I'm just like, okay, oh. <laughs> the complete other end of the spectrum of what I write. So, uh, I had to go with Timothy C. Ward, um, but it's okay. It works. Uh, let's see. Should we do the the reading? I would love to. And now, let me go back. 2.30. What, what page was it, was it on? I forgot. Now. I think it was 2.32. Two. Should we... Um, How's that? Yeah, and that's that's fine. Should we give a little bit of context to introduce this? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, about two-thirds of the way into the book, Robbie, Austin, and Shan begin to put together the pieces of what's going on that is actually going to lead to the end of the world. Austin, as a narrator, he's always kind of... he's he's. At the same time, he's in the moment and he's talking first person, but he's also sometimes omniscient. And so as he's rewritten this history of the end of the world in Ealing, Iowa, he's also, he, he's also identified the precise moment where it started. But at this point in the book, the boys and Shan don't really know, but they're starting to put it together. And they've started to put it together by watching these films that they found that are orientation films from this corporation that caused the end of the world about what to do in case of the end of the world. And the films go through the whole history of this corporation that started as a fertilizer company, and then they started to try to uh, genetically modify corn so that insects wouldn't eat it, and they did genetically modify the corn so insects wouldn't eat it, but it probably wasn't a very good idea, and they called it unstoppable corn. So that's a little lead-in to these kids watching this movie, uh, and it's only the second part of five parts, and they have to somehow find the last couple of parts because the last couple of parts are the secret to everything. But... So here we are, unstoppable corn. Like smoking cigarettes on the job, they probably thought unstoppable corn was a good idea at the time. Scientists working for Dr. Grady McKeon experimented with corn. I know that's an oddly funny thing to say, and I may have to strike that line from my history book, but that's what they did. They experimented with corn. Scientists at McKeon Industries, like Robbie Breeze and I, had no idea what the results of their experiment would be, but they did it anyway. Dr. Grady McKeon and his colleagues attempted to blend genetic material from the semen of grasshoppers into the pollen from corn plants. Pollen is plant sperm. It was not a good idea. The corn they produced from their plant sperm and grasshopper semen experiment 
was lively and strong. It was also true that, as hoped, bugs would not eat it. It was unstoppable. Dr. Grady McKeon was very happy. His company's stock was worth an incalculable fortune. Fortune is also an odd word. Unfortunately, the corn that was produced by the plant, sperm, and grasshopper semen experiment at McKeon Industries also caused an undesirable side effect in teenage boys. Their balls dissolved. Testicular dissolution among developing adolescent males is how Dr. Grady McKeon described it. That sounded nicer. If a doctor told me, you are merely experiencing testicular dissolution, it would not frighten me nearly as much as if he said, your balls are going to dissolve, Austin. Actually, the scientists from McKeon Industries at first concluded that their unstoppable corn only caused boys undergoing puberty to have their balls dissolve. That was because the slightest amount of unstoppable corn affected adolescent boys that way. Ultimately, it was discovered that unstoppable corn would pretty much dissolve anyone's balls if you ate enough of it and if you also had balls. Enough of it turned out to be about an ear and a half. The corn that was harvested in all the McKeon farms across Iowa that year was shipped as a goodwill gesture from the United States of America to the people of Canada. That was the end of Reel 2. <laughs> oh, man. I was really struggling not to laugh hard enough for people to hear. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, I love that line. It was a goodwill gesture to the people of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I love Canada, and I have so many Canadian friends. But, you know, America has just done stuff like that so many times. <laughs> oh, there's, there's a lot of uh, one-liners you could cherry-pick out about other people that they sent the corn to that, that made me laugh pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I lie? <laughs> President Nixon brought it himself. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, it's this book is a real treat. If you haven't if you haven't uh, already read it or thought about it, you really should. It and also it's been a real treat to meet you, Andrew. I can't wait to go through your back catalog. Uh, when does Winger Two release? Uh, that will be in the uh, in the fall of 2015, and I have another book in the spring of 2015 that's coming out with Penguin. Uh, their follow up. It's not a it's not a sequel to Grasshopper Jungle, but it's it's along those kinds of lines. It's a big it's a big big book like Grasshopper Jungle. Hmm. So, have you thought about writing a sequel to Grasshopper Jungle? Well, hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, like it's there. Yeah, I, I would have, I have ideas, but unlike uh, almost all of my books, I well, yeah, this this book has a unique ending for me in that it has a very big ending. It has an ending like a movie's ending. I mean, it, it's got a really cool wrapped up 
very neat ending. And a lot of the ending, I mean, like, I like to leave endings that have questions that people have to answer for themselves. And in this case, Grasshopper Jungle wraps up in a gigantically nice, kind of glorious way. But the what happens next could be a really cool story, too. Yeah, that's that's true. It. Well, I'm looking forward to it if you do write a sequel. Okay, Andrew, it's been great to have you on the show. We wish you the best, and it's been great to meet you. I look forward to chatting with you soon. This was fantastic fun. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. Thank you to our sponsor, The Changeling Detective by Phil Berry. Learn more at hotspurpublishing.com. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.